0: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Danny Orbach about his book, Curse on this country, the rebellious army of Imperial Japan, which was released from Cornell University Press in 2017. Curse on this country provides new insights into the origins of the insubordination that plagued and characterized the Imperial Japanese army in the 1930s. Orbach identifies the causes of insubordination in both the political culture of the military, dating back to before the Meiji Restoration itself, uh, and also to a series of systemic bugs that infected the modern political system, but that were in themselves the result of mostly reasonable solutions to challenges Japan faced early on in its campaign of blitzkrieg modernization. By assembling a series of mostly well-known events, though some less well-known, into a coherent narrative from the 1860s all the way to the 1930s, Horbach shows how insubordination in the name of the emperor rotted the army from its core and destroyed civilian control in the process and culminated in the military governments of the Second World War period. The book is not only a convincing reevaluation of the history of the army and, and modern Japan itself, but also a refreshing antidote to persistent misconceptions about the roots and timeline of Japan's imperial ambitions. Instead of a geopolitical imperial strategy with roots in the 1870s, in which there is a continuity of aggressive expansionist purpose. What we come away with instead is a story about the continuity of structural or systemic bugs and their long-term unintended consequences. A note to listeners, this podcast was recorded live in front of an audience at Nagoya University, and I'd like to thank Dr. Orbach for his generosity in this matter. So, uh, Dr. Orbach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. uh, And it's wonderful to have you here uh, with a live audience. So, we always uh, begin the podcast asking uh, sort of how you came to this project and how this fits into your larger work and interests. So, if you could tell us about that, that'd be a great start to the podcast.
1: So, I came to this project in a pretty unusual way. I was always interested in unusual people in unusual situations Making unusual choices. And given general tendencies in research to speak about daily life, eh, people who are more normal, eh, I took the opposite direction. And then I discovered I'm interested not necessarily in elites in the strictest sense of the term, the prime minister, the foreign minister, such people, but people who may be quite usual, but have to make unusual choices in unusual situations. And that brought me into the subject of military resistance. Soldiers who make the unusual decision to disobey. Unusual because in any military organizations, of course, you are supposed to obey all the time. Actually, I didn't begin in Japanese studies. I began in German studies. My first book was about the German resistance to Hitler, about these officers in the German army, usually very high officers, who decided to assassinate Hitler in order to stop the war. And then I moved to Japanese studies. And I didn't really know in the beginning what to do. I, as I began as somebody from German studies, in the beginning I compared mutual images of Nazis and Japanese, just try to see how did they think Of one another. I studied the Japan scholars from the SS, actually, for a while. And then I came upon the idea, doing in Japan just what I did in Germany, checking the subject of military disobedience. And then I was surprised, because usually if you read about the Japanese army, the image was that it was maybe one of the most obedient armies ever. The popular image of Japan, if you read these popular books on the Pacific War, is, you know, people just shouting banzai and running to their death, obeying every order no matter how crazy. And then I came into the subject and discovered the Japanese army was actually one of the wildest and most disobedient armies in modern history. And then I knew, okay, it's something to dig into.
0: Yeah, thank you. So that that helps to put your book, not just uh your, your book into perspective in uh your own research, but sort of into this larger conversation um about military history uh on a global scale. Um and I, I think this is really interesting that you've decided to do this sort of away from the corridors of power. Um Though in the book, of course, there's a lot of reference to the corridors of power when people are making these decisions. And I thought that's something that's something we'll obviously get into. Um, so your thesis uh, that the Japanese army is one of the most sort of insubordinate and disobedient, um, you, you lay that out in the introduction along with uh, the sort of four major structural features uh, that make it that way. Could you tell us about those features um, and uh, how you came to, to identify them?
1: These are the features that I call the basic bugs in the modern Japanese system. So in the book, I use the metaphor of a computer bug. In a way, I liken the modern Japanese state to a computer program. Anybody here who dealt with computers may know that a bug in a software does not necessarily make the software stop working. The software works, but in certain situations, the bug comes into play and then the system is in a problem. And that's what happened in modern Japan. Decisions which were made very early in order to make the system work, in order to overcome specific problems, in order to create a new modern state out of nothing. Decisions which were very reasonable when made in the early Meiji period, in the 1870s, were proved disastrous later when things developed unexpectedly. In the first decision, what I call the first bug, is actually the imperial system as it developed. Japan was ruled by an emperor. The old justification for the revolution of the major restoration was restoration of imperial rule. Otherwise, there is no sense to this revolution. But as everybody knew at the time, the emperor could not rule and did not rule. He was 16 years old. And the idea of the people who were behind the revolution was to develop the country according to their own will, not to submit to the will of a teenage boy. And then they were in a the problem. They had to pretend that the emperor was absolute authority, was in absolute control, and manage the things from behind the scene. The prize for their decision was that the status or the political positions of the so-called Meiji oligarchs, the people who managed the revolution, the people who managed the country in the Meiji period, their position was not determined in the constitution, nor in any law. They were informal rulers. Formally, the ruler was the emperor, and the officials the emperor appointed. This contradiction, this kind of make belief made or created a very serious problem because anybody was dissatisfied. And in every political system, somebody is dissatisfied with the decisions made. Somebody is marginalized. Somebody is thrown out. People who are unhappy could always say, oh, the people who are ruling the country do not do the will of the emperor. Do not conform to the will of the emperor. The emperor wants something else. So why there is this government decree that I don't like? Because the traitors around the throne distorted the will of the emperor. What does the emperor want? Ah, I know what the emperor wants. I just know it. And that was an excuse for rebellions and disobedience from the 1870s to the 1930s. The system was built like that for a reason. But... Problems developed later.
0: Yeah, can, can you start to tell us uh, what some of those reasons were? You lay them out early on in the book. Um, why would you build a system that way?
1: Actually, the people who were behind the Meiji Restoration had to learn while working. They didn't have any political model to follow. Of course, they could not follow the feudal model of the Tokugawa regime, because that was just the model they wanted to overthrow. On the other hand, they were really unfamiliar with the Western models in the beginning, and the idea that Japan should be a westernized country was very rare, actually, in the early 1970s. It developed very quickly, but it was not there from the very beginning. On the other hand, uh, there were other models. For example, the Chinese, the ancient Chinese model. But this was too distant, too far away. So we had to improvise while moving. The only institution which was in the late Tokugawa period, virtually consensus, according to everybody, was the imperial institution. And that's why it was very easy for everybody who was against the Tokugawa regime to cling to the imperial institution. So this was the justification for the revolution. That was one reason. The second reason, you want to create a Western state, but there are many Western models. Which Western model would you choose? You can choose the French Republican model, but that's non-kosher. Because the French, of course, were Republicans, and the emperor is very important, according to the ideology of the revolution, you can choose the Russian model of an emperor that rules the country with an iron fist, a tsar. But as the emperor was a young boy, and the people who were behind the revolution wanted to rule collectively, the Russian model of an unbridled imperial tyranny was not good as well. The British model, too democratic. They believe that the Japanese people are not yet ready for such a democracy. They did believe that it will happen sometime in the future, but not yet. So Germany was the only one that remained. A country which is 20% democratic, maybe. The people participate, but we actually don't rule oligarchs, nobility, so the oligarchs of the major Restoration could know that they will have a strong status in the system, and an emperor who is actually ruling according to advice. But in Germany, at least, the emperor was an adult, so he could rule along with his advisors. In Japan, that was not the case. So on the one hand, they had to imagine that there is an emperor in charge, but on the other end, they had to cope with the fact that nobody was in charge. That's how the system was created, the way it was.
0: So that's how we get ourselves to 1868 with a revolution that at least nominally puts the emperor on the throne uh, as a kind of supreme commander, right? Um, and yet there's actually this informal system of rule. Um, and you point out, and I think this is you know, one of the sort of key insights of the book, that from the very beginning, this is obviously a sort of tainted system, one with, with, with bugs in it, um, and that that begins playing out already uh, in the first decade of uh, the new Meiji era. Um, and in particular, if you could tell us a little bit about how that plays out in uh, 1874 in the Taiwan Expedition, because this is a, it's an event that's relatively well known to uh, those of us in Japanese history, but you present it um, as a kind of seminal moment for looking at the insubordination of the modern Japanese army.
1: Most of the people who write about the Taiwan expedition, the attempt of the Japanese government to invade southern Taiwan in order to punish the natives for killing some fishermen from the Ryukyu Islands. Usually it is being analyzed as an event in Japanese foreign policy, vis-a-vis the powers, or its impacts on Taiwan. And this is all very interesting and important. But what's usually overlooked that there was military disobedience involved? A General Saigo Tsugumichi, the younger brother of the more famous Saigo Takamori, who later led the Satsuma Rebellion, was the commander-in-chief of the Taiwan Expedition. He worked with the government, he was considered very loyal, he assembled volunteers, many of them dissatisfied samurai from Tosa and Satsuma, in Nagasaki with some government troops in order to invade Taiwan. Until that moment, spring 1874, everything was fine. And then the government gives an order, stop, wait, we are cancelling the expedition. Why? Uh, Because of pressure from the U.S. and the British embassies. Then Saigo Tsugumichi disobeyed. And uh, he had many reasons to disobey. Actually, he was himself very much pressured by the Satsuma volunteers around him. Probably was afraid of being assassinated, actually, if the expedition would have been cancelled. But it was more complicated. When he disobeyed the government, he told them, wait a moment, you gave me an imperial decree to invade Taiwan. You cannot cancel it with a mere order of the cabinet. And in you, the cabinet did not have time to get another imperial decree to cancel the expedition. So, in effect, he's using the emperor in order to disobey the government. He did not intend to disobey. As far as he was concerned, it was an emergency. But you see the political system which lets generals to do such things. And I call it in the book, the hazy center. The emperor was the center of the Japanese politics. But it was not completely clear what the emperor wanted and how the imperial will is manifested. And Saigo Tsugumichi was one of the first generals to play with ambiguity. So
0: yeah, that's why uh it, that's what you talk about in chapter two, uh which is about the Taiwan expedition. And and I think it's this great way that set that that you set up in that first decade, which is uh part one of your book, Age of Chaos, uh 1868 to 1878, which is um you, you set up the this episode that um uh, you know, as you say, I think is is you know that that aspect of uh Tsugumichi's uh Taiwan expedition is often overlooked, right, as uh, a sort of harbinger of what was to come. Uh, And you get in more into, uh, in part two of the book, uh, the ways in particular in which uh, the prerogative of supreme command uh, becomes a problem. And you talk most about that uh, directly in chapter four, uh, Gold-Eating Monsters, Uh, Military Independence and the Prerogative of Supreme Command. So first, obviously, it's a great chapter name. uh, If you could tell us a little bit about why they're gold-eating monsters uh, and also about what the prerogative of Supreme Command is and why it's a problem and how it fits into your story.
1: The metaphor of the gold-eating monster, uh, I have to give credit to the famous Japanese novelist uh, Shiba Ryutaro, a really, really amazing writer of historical novels, and he wrote about the Japanese army, and he mentioned this mythological monster from Chinese mythology, actually, called Pi which is a monster which feeds on gold. This is a kind of a metaphor for the Japanese army who was always craving more power and especially more budget. So much so that the famous slogan of the Meiji period, strong army, rich country, Many people used it in a joke and said, strong army, poor country, because the army took so much money. And again, as usual in the book, I point out to the institutional problems that permitted or allowed the army to behave in such a way. And this institutional tool, the first out of several, was the prerogative of supreme command. The prerogative of supreme command was actually a German legal construct. In German, it is called Kommando Gewalt. And the idea is that the army is answerable only to the emperor, not to the government, not to the prime minister, not to the minister of defense. There was a good reason to establish such a system in Japan of the Meiji period. The 1870s were, as I called it in the book, the age of chaos. There were many rebellions, uprisings, and some of these uprisings used military units which were loyal to specific politicians. These were feudal ties, ties from before the Meiji Restoration. And Yamagata Aritomo was the person who who built the Meiji Japanese army, wanted to avoid such incidents, such rebellions at all costs. So his idea was that the Japanese army will be completely divorced of politics. So no politician could use the army for what Yamagata saw as selfish, partisan reasons. And remember the context, the historical context. At the time, the 1880s, you have a, a new opposition movement called the Movement for Popular Rights, A semi-liberal movement asking for more political participation, for a parliament, for a constitution. Yamagata was very afraid that this movement will influence the armed forces. So he wanted to divorce the army from politics. But everybody was a politician. The prime minister was a politician. The defense minister was a politician. The only one who was not a politician was the emperor. And that's why he took this German construct. The only problem is that there was a mistranslation. Actually, the Japanese never applied the German model correctly. In Germany, as I said before, the emperor was an adult. Of course, he was not the person who made the decisions all the time. He always consulted. And yet, he had the last word. It was not the case in Japan. So the army was actually subordinate to an authority that didn't really exist. Only the emperor could give the army orders, that meant nobody could really give the army orders because the emperor in Japan did not make independent decisions. Therefore, it was a weird situation. According to the prerogative of Supreme Command, the Emperor, the sorry, the army and the government, the civilian government, had to rule the country together. They had to make strategic decisions together. I always say, imagine two people riding on a motorbike and they have to decide if to turn right or left, but they have to do it together. This would not have been a great problem, but for the fact that the army leaders did not have adequate control over junior officers. Because if the army is very strong, according to the prerogative of supreme command, then yes, it's very problematic. But then if there is one general who controls the army, the chief of the general staff, the army minister, then you can imagine the civilian prime minister sitting with the chief of the general staff in a room and they make decisions together. The problem was that it was difficult for the chief of the general staff to control the army. And that made the prerogative of supreme command into a, a really dangerous institution because the army was strong on the one hand, externally strong, but it was weak from the inside. Nobody could really control it. So it was like a huge truck that went out of control. Yeah, this
0: this uh, reminded me when I was reading the book uh... – you obviously curse on this country is a wonderful title but i also thought that a um good subtitle would have been unintended consequences right because it's you really set up this uh very comprehensive story about how reasonable decisions are being made at each juncture in response to you know specific contexts and situations um that have these uh, unforeseen and unintended consequences far down the line uh, the rest of part two uh the age of military independence uh which you've blocked out as uh basically a quarter century eighteen seventy eight to nineteen thirteen um, in chapters five and six, you look both at uh, you look at one uh foreign incident and one domestic incident, the assassination of Queen Min in uh, chapter five and the Taisho political crisis uh, in 1912, 1913. Um, can you tell us about uh, the ways that these structural uh, faults problems with the way the army was set up played out in these two incidents? And also uh, for those who don't have uh, as uh, strong a background in Japanese history, give a little background on the incidents themselves.
1: Sure. Uh, first, it is important to speak on the assassination of Queen Min, A, a really a story which is like a thriller. Uh, it was a chapter which was fascinating for me to work on. The year is 1895. Japan just won a war against China, the first Sino-Japanese War. And this war was on Korea. But as Japan won the war... Three foreign countries—France, Germany, Russia—intervened in the so-called Triple Intervention and took some of the prizes. They didn't let Japan to take control of the Liaodong Liao Peninsula in China. The war was in Korea, and in Korea there were many factions. These factions were loyal either to China or to Japan or to Russia. There was an internal Korean political game, and factions changed loyalty very frequently. One of the strongest politicians in Korea was Empress Myung Song, or as she's known today, Queen Min. This is actually uh, the Japanese pronunciation of her name. And she thought that was a good opportunity to ally with Russia and expel Japanese influence from Korea. Particularly, she tried to disband some Korean military units which were loyal to the Japanese. And then, you have the Japanese ambassador in Korea. Actually, if we use 19th century terms, the Japanese minister in Korea. A former general, Miura Goro. He is an opposition figure in Japan. This is the key issue here. He hates the Japanese government, he hates the Meiji oligarchs, and he feels, as a general and as an opposition politician, that is subordinate to the emperor only, not to the foreign ministry. And then he decides to solve the problem in an original way, to assassinate Queen Min. And he's doing it without asking anybody. And Miura says famously, I made a decision in the time that it takes to take three puffs from a cigarette. I didn't even bother to ask the Japanese government. Whether I was right or wrong, only heaven can decide. He was tried, but he was not punished. And that encouraged similar behavior in the future. And I want for for a moment to look behind the story and see the structure here. A general, a former general in this case, who sees himself as answerable only to the emperor who never gives him orders. And that means he can act independently when he believes it's absolutely necessary. And I want to emphasize, General Miura believed that killing Queen Min was an emergency measure which he had to take in order to prevent a complete collapse of the Japanese position in Korea. So he didn't disobey lightly. He disobeyed when he believed that there was an emergency which justified disobedience. But the structure using the emperor to disobey was there. And another example I dwell upon in my book is the Taisho political crisis, which is an internal Japanese incident. That happens in 1912 and 1913. The Meiji Emperor just died. That was a very big trauma in Japan. As some people even took their own lives. It was very hard to cope with the shock. Most Japanese at the time did not know any other emperor. He ruled continuously from 1868 to 1912, and that brought the political system into a turmoil. The army believed it's a good idea to press the government for more budget. More budget to establish two additional divisions. The army said, you know, situation in China is very difficult. The Chinese empire just collapsed. The powers are trying to grab slices of the Chinese melon. And we need two additional divisions. The government did not have money. So every year, the government used to postpone the budget for the army. The problem was that the navy asked for money as well, because the Japanese fleet was completely obsolete. At the time, it had to be renewed. So the fleet, uh, the navy asked for money, the army asked for money. The Japanese government told both kids, usually, we don't have money for each of you. So next year, next year, next year. The government of Siongik in Mochi in 1912 made a crucial decision to give money to the navy and not to the army. And this was a decision based on all sorts of internal domestic partisan political calculations. And then the army decided that this was too much, and they created a political crisis. In order to create a political crisis, they used the prerogative of supreme command in a very creative way. A bylaw legislated in 1900 said that the army minister has to be an active duty general just as the Navy minister has to be an active-duty admiral. What the army did was withdrawing the minister and refusing to appoint another army minister. No army minister, no government. And the army discovered that the prerogative of supreme command does not only let him to to pressure cabinets, but actually to overthrow unfriendly governments. Next prime minister appointed... Decides not to give money neither to the army nor to the navy. Then the navy tries to use the same trick. Withdrawing the navy minister, not appointing a new navy minister, the government falls. There was a huge political crisis. In order, the second prime minister, Katsura, in order to avoid downfall, he used an imperial decree to order the navy to stay in the government, to order the navy minister not to resign. And it tried to grab this bull in its horns. So you say there is prerogative of supreme command, only the emperor can give you orders? Okay, I will bring an imperial order. Of course, this brought the political system to the verge of collapse. Katsura uh, ruled through imperial decrees, and then something amazing happened. The opposition started to disobey imperial decrees because you cannot use the emperor to rule all the time and expect that people will obey the emperor. The emperor is always obeyed only because he doesn't rule. And when Katsura noticed that an imperial decree is going to be ignored, he understood that the Japanese system was on the verge of collapse, because the entire system was built on a lie. That the emperor is the supreme ruler of the country. When this lie will be exposed, the system may fall down. So he resigned and the next prime minister who came from the navy abolished the bylaw that permitted the army and the navy to overthrow governments. From now on, reserve duty generals and admirals, some of whom were politicians, could be navy and army ministers. So. The army actually suffered a setback because they tried to use their power too early and too much. It was a kind of an overkill. And then we see that in the late 1910s, 1920s, we have a period of increased civilian control. So as I write in the book, the gold-eating monster is defeated, but it's not pursued into its lair. The army is still there, and when the circumstances will change, they will grab power once more. Because the supreme prerogative of supreme command is never abolished. It's only mitigated.
0: So uh, for those of us who are uh, s- steeped in, in modern Japanese history, this uh, section, this you know, 25-year uh, section on the age of military independence and the uh, defeated but not destroyed gold-eating monster uh, who... Uh, Is foreshadowing right Uh, where you've set it up that you have uh, generals who uh, well you have officers uh, general in this case uh, Miura acting independently uh, of the brass in Tokyo uh, in opposition in fact to both the civilian and uh, military uh, uh, leadership in Tokyo um, in a foreign country to carry out Uh, extrajudicial assassination in the name of an imagined uh, imperial will, right? The hazy center, as you call it. You also have the deep and abiding structural problem that leads to the Taisho political crisis about how you form and destroy cabinets um, and whether that's going to uh, bring down the entire fiction upon which the system rests. So, as you say, in the 20s, you have this period of uh, relative uh, stasis under uh, increased civilian control. But then in your part three, you, uh, which is Into the Dark Valley, uh, you get to that part of Japanese history where people are more familiar with the insubordinate uh, Japanese army. Right, where all of these consequences come to the fore and bring Japan into the Dark Valley. So in Chapter 8, uh, you begin by talking about the assassination of Zhang Zhuo-Lin in 1928. Um, and in particular, I'd like you to talk about that and also your Chapter 10, Pure as Water, Uh, the incident of February 1936. Because these, again, these are incidents that are are relatively uh, well-known in Japanese history, but we see them in a different light when you've put them into this single long narrative. So if you could sort of bring us to our conclusion uh, by doing that, that would be great.
1: Sure. As I did before, I would like to highlight the structures behind the events. And here, there is a very important process, which I call in the book, the democratization of disobedience. You see a phenomena that in the beginning, let's say, 1870s, 1880s, officers who disobey tend to be very senior officers. In the Taisho political crisis, it's already junior generals, I would say mid-level officers. And then they become more and more junior in rank. And in the 1930s, you see captains, majors, lieutenants, who are actually leading this disobedience. And this happens because of a very interesting military development. In the 1920s, Japan is involved in a lot of small wars in China. These wars are intensely political. They involve all sorts of warlords, very complicated domestic Chinese politics, and Japanese officers in the field have to make very quick decisions. And we are increasingly using yet another German construct imported to the Japanese army, which is called in German mission tactics, Auftrag Taktik, and in Japanese the term is Dokudan Senko, arbitrary action. That means when you are in an emergency as a junior officer, you know what the mission is, you know the situation on the ground, you can take tactical decisions to solve the problem, even if you disobey direct order. But this is only tactical. The problem was when the arbitrary action of junior officers got mixed with the prerogative of supreme command. The prerogative of, it's just like two chemical solutions, which become explosive when we are mixed. Because the prerogative of Supreme Command permitted very senior officers to make strategic decisions along with the government, but not the rest of the army. The arbitrary action, the Dokudan senko, gave very junior officers the freedom to make tactical decisions in the field, independently of the army high command. But then, in the late 1920s, junior officers came upon the idea that they can mix the two ideas, that is, taking strategic decisions in the field. If they oppose the civilian government or the high command, usually what these junior officers said, that the high command and the civilian government are controlled by sinister and corrupted feudal cliques, or that we are in league with Chinese warlords, say, or that they oppress the people, they oppress the peasantry. There were many, many arguments. But the idea was that junior officers felt that they can take uh, independent decisions in the field, and that's what happened in 1928. Colonel Komoto Daisaku was an operation, a actually senior staff officer, of the Kwantung army in Manchuria for all sort of organizational reasons, which I detail in the book. He was really completely unsupervised and he decided to solve a problem, a very complicated problem. The Japanese government had with Zhang Zuolin. Zhang Zuolin was the warlord of Manchuria, one of the most, uh, strongest, most important warlords in China. And the problem was very complicated. Actually, the prime minister, Prime Minister Tanaka, was about to solve it in political ways, just about to solve it. And then Komoto, who didn't know anything about what the prime minister did, thought it's his prerogative to solve the problem by killing Zhang Zuelin. And he assassinated him and completely destroyed the policy of the prime minister. The prime minister tried to go to the emperor, and got actually an imperial approval to punish Komoto. But the army wouldn't allow it. Because punishing Komoto would uh, compromise the honor of the army. I think that so far it should have been clear from what I said that the Japanese army was sick to the bone. It had institutional maladies. The whole system was corrupt. And nobody in the army wanted to expose it. Nobody in the army wanted it to come into light and therefore they decided to hide it. Tanaka did not succeed in punishing Komoto and had to resign. And then, think about it. If it's permitted to kill a Chinese leader in an emergency in order to uh, promote Japanese foreign policy, what happens if a Japanese leader is harming the country, why not assassinate him as well? That was only one further logical step. And then you had in uh, 1931, the so-called Cherry Blossom Society, the Sakurakai, which tried to uh, virtually exterminate the entire government with a naval bomber. Their punishment was uh, two weeks, if I remember well, of detention in an inn with geisha and alcohol. It was an a ryokan. Um, once I was punished, in, I was in the Israeli army, I was punished for the reliction of duty because I didn't work in a night shift. And I got uh, three, three weeks of detention. Uh, they got two weeks, they got less for trying to kill the prime minister. And you see how much the system was crazy. It happened gradually. But the results were disastrous. And this leads us directly to the more famous February incident of 1936. So that when the February incident in 1936 was an interesting incident, because it actually, again, it was a combination of two processes. One was the escalation of Japanese disobedience, which I spoke about. If in 1912, the army overthrew a cabinet, but nobody used violence and nobody even thought about using violence, and in 1928, Japanese officers murdered a foreign leader, just like in 1895 with Queen Min, in 1928, it was Zhang Zuo Lin, we spoke about it. Then, in the beginning of the 1930s, they started to murder Japanese leaders as well. And in 1936, they crossed yet another red line. Because beforehand, the idea was, following the tradition of the Shishi, the samurai terrorists before the Meiji Restoration, which was, I didn't say it before, very important for disobedient officers in the Japanese army, you are doing your own heroics. But that's your business. You murder a leader, you pay the price, or you don't pay the price. Sometimes you are just in an inn for two weeks. But you do it yourself. You take the risk. In 1936, they actually used soldiers for a full-fledged military coup d'etat. And this was an escalation. That was the most extreme form the Japanese military disobedience came to mobilizing soldiers and murdering virtually the cohort of the emperor's closest advisors and trying to take over the country. On the other end, there was another process going on, which I also mentioned before, the democratization of disobedience. The rank of officers who disobeyed became lower and lower and lower. And in this case, they were very young. Captains, lieutenants, some of them were actually below 20. And their education was very limited. Most of them were never abroad. They were educated in military schools with a very narrow frame. They didn't know anything about politics. They didn't know anything about the world. So they couldn't function. If the generals, in previous cases of disobedience, knew the way around politics and could get concessions from the government and the army high command, these guys made their first wave of assassinations and then just didn't know what to do. In my favorite scene, they are coming to Asai Shinbun, which they blame in anti-Japanese tendencies and declare they want to give heavenly punishment to the newspaper. But they actually don't kill anybody. They just go to the second floor and start to kick the fonts, the fonts of the different Chinese characters uh, being used in the production of the newspapers. So they behave more and more like children. And this is very clear to the army high command. The Army I commanded at the beginning wants to use them in order to get concessions from the government in the usual pattern, because I want to emphasize. I told you before that the army had a combination of strength and weakness, external strength as an institution, but weakness from the inside. In the late 1920s, the senior generals discovered that that could be used as a tool of political extortion. Because they told the prime minister, I I want to get into a compromise with you. It's just these young hotheads in the army that wouldn't let me. So give me concessions so I can make them happy. The army commanders tried to use the same trick again in 1936, but this time it didn't work. And it didn't work because the emperor interfered. Emperor Yorito, and that was almost unprecedented, decided to personally interfere and told the generals, you are going to crush this rebellion today, now. He actually asked for update every 20 minutes. The people who killed my advisors Are people trying to strangle me with silk floss? And according to one of the testimonies, he even threatened the generals that if they don't crush the rebellion now, he will go with the palace guard personally to do it. And this shows how a system with a hazy center can be tricky. Because usually the emperor is not there. And people can struggle and interpret the imperial will. But this is not a god, it's a human being. And if he decides to come forth, then the entire system will have to obey. And that's what happened in 1936. Then the rebellion was crushed. These people uh, uh, were uh, executed. The emperor didn't even let them make suicide, didn't want to give them even this concession. He condemned their motives, not only what they did, because a, a usual trick of Japanese assassins before was to say, oh, I was wrong, but my motives were pure. That was another heritage of the Shishi tradition from the late Tokugawa period, and they were executed. But even after this rebellion was crushed, the army was, was able to extort concessions from the government, give us something so this would not happen again. And after the initial shock, the army got more and more concessions, Until you have, in the form of General Tojo Hideki, the army actually managing the government in the time of the Pacific War. So the process of Japanese, escalation of military disobedience, stopped because there was no need for violent disobedience any longer. The army managed things. The process of democratization of disobedience was reversed after 1936, and it was again the responsible adults who were in charge. And it was these responsible adults, not the young officers, not the hot-headed terrorists, who brought Japan to its greatest disaster in the Pacific War. Some scholars asked whether it actually mattered. There is a very famous Japan scholar, James Crowley, He wrote some seminal books in articles in the 1960s who argued that this was not really important because all of the important decisions to extend in China, to extend the empire without limits, to go to war with the United States, were in the end of the day made by the government. But in my opinion, Crowley is missing something important. The government may have chosen a certain course of foreign policy, but due to military pressure, they could have done nothing else. Usually, when you have a political system, politicians, like prime ministers, get pressured for many quarters. So a Japanese prime minister may be pressured by public opinion and may be pressured by the army and may be pressured by the Americans and may be pressured by the Soviets and then is making foreign policy decisions based on the sum of his pressures. But when you have one element in the system, the army, whose pressure you can never ignore, then actually, no matter how much the Americans will pressure you, You have to do what the army wants. And that's why the army, strong in its weakness, strong as an institution, weak from inside, was instrumental in pushing Japan into the road of boundless imperialism and to the clash with China and the United States that ended in the Pacific War.
0: So that's a a really nice way to wrap up uh talking about the book but if I could just uh add one thing for myself which is that you know as someone who's familiar with these individual incidents um and who's even taught most of them um in classes having them laid end to end uh in this increasingly Depressing narrative uh, that eventually gets you to there's no room for insubordination because you've actually had a second revolution, right? Which puts, which installs uh, Tojo and, and his like as this, as the military, you know, uh, government. Um, this was, I think, one of the great contributions of the book is to uh, not only, you know, uh, is it enjoyable to read, the stories are great, um, but that. It provides a perspective uh, over the over this long term from 1868 to 1936 that thinking about the individual incidents does not. Um, and so I really appreciated uh, not only getting the refresher course on what the actual incidents were, but in seeing them in an entirely new light. Um and so I'm actually looking forward to uh we talked about this a little bit before uh uh before the podcast began um hearing about your new project uh and I I I guess I guess I won't have you on the East Asian Studies blog when the book comes out but if you could tell us about that uh well maybe I will it depends on what you're 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 here in Japan doing research right can you tell us a little bit about that and about your current project
1: so I have uh, two projects uh, in one of them I study Japanese covert operations in the Russo-Japanese War, I'm interested in the way which Japanese intelligence operatives have fomented or encouraged revolutions in Russia and communicated with Russian revolutionaries and ethnic minority. But my main project is actually not Japan-related. It's called Fugitives, and it's about the role of wanted Nazi war criminals in Cold War espionage. And it seems there was this group of former Nazi adventurers, many of them SS, Gestapo, really heavy war criminals, some just intelligence professionals, who spied for virtually everybody in the Cold War. The Soviets, the Americans, the Arab countries, the West Germans, the East Germans, and even the Israelis. And I'm using documents which are going to be exposed by secret services, Actually, for the first time, to try to look at Cold War espionage and the Cold War in general from a different perspective, to look from the shadows on the event, on famous events and see how they were influenced by these shadowy struggles.
0: Well, uh, I wish you the best of luck, and I know you're going to the Foreign Ministry Archives here in Japan, uh, and you have some time here to write, uh, so enjoy it, and I I, uh, I do look forward to having you back, especially if you uh, go through with the uh, Russo-Japanese War Project. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you.